Welcome to the first ever episode of the Internal Communications Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. I've spent nearly 30 years helping organisations communicate better internally. I've met some amazing people in that time and had some really fascinating conversations. With IC rising up the boardroom agenda, it now seems right to share these conversations with a wider audience. If you have responsibility for IC or simply an interest in improving the way we communicate at work, then the IC podcast is for you. Thank you for joining me for episode one of season one and my interview with Rachel Miller, a prolific blogger, educator and keynote speaker. Rachel is perhaps one of the most respected and listened to voices in internal communications. She's contributed to a shelf's worth of best-selling books, runs bespoke and hugely popular masterclasses and is a fellow of both the Institute of Internal Communication and the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. Though she's better known for her consultancy work, Rachel has also worked in-house at London Underground, Novartist, Visa, the list continues. I met Rachel in her shed quarters, a very impressive office at the end of her garden in West London. Now, what you're about to hear is a very, very honest, far-ranging and candid conversation. We touch on a host of important issues, building resilience, what to do when you get stuck on a problem, the latest IC trends and how Rachel launched and continues to develop her business, All Things IC. And listen out for the big reveal, a totally new type of masterclass that Rachel's launching later this year. Now, over the last two years alone, Rachel has personally trained more than 450 IC pros. So I dived straight in at the deep end with a fairly searching question about today's IC professionals. Every year, you're training, counselling or advising internal communicators across the UK. What common trait or characteristic consistently delights you today about communicators? And conversely, what consistently frustrates you? That's a good question. (laughs) So I think what delights me is the willingness for internal communicators to evolve and adapt to what they do. I think you can't carry on doing what you were doing five years ago, 10 years ago, if you're working in internal comms, you have to be open to innovation. You have to be open to new ideas and you have to be open to learning from people around you and reflecting the environment that we're operating in. So I'm constantly delighted by that and seeing the willingness to adapt and evolve and flex our approach. What frustrates me is when organisations don't realise that we need to flex and adapt our approach. So there's lots of resistance from internal comms people who are trying to push the envelope a bit, who are trying to do things a bit differently, trying to move towards co-created communication, for example, or advising leaders that I'm not going to be writing your emails for you anymore. You need to be authentic. You need to be trustworthy. You need to be credible. So I think what's frustrating a lot of internal comms people is that constant conversation around demonstrating our worth gravitas seat at the table all of these conversations that we've had for years for years for years and years (laughs) so I think that's a constant frustration but you can influence that you can shape it you can change it so having that willingness and ability to know things need to be different and then believing in yourself trusting in yourself doing your homework gathering your allies and just evidencing what you do is the way to get cut through it's the way to be successful in internal comms I think Brilliant, brilliant. I completely agree with you. Let's sort of turn a little bit to the beginning and your own sort of journey into IC. I believe you might have entered the world of IC through the same route as me, through journalism. Is that right? Was that that the dream job initially or...? The dream job was to be a Blue Peter presenter. Of course. I really wanted to be a Blue Peter presenter. It was my dream and I wrote to the BBC and said, I think... I'd make a great presenter. Did they write back? They did. They're very encouraging. 
they wrote back I was very young I think I was seven maybe the first time I wrote to them and their advice was stay in school <laughs> carry on watching and carry on applying and I actually discovered the the world of journalism I was influenced by Lois Lane I was influenced <gasps> by Superman <laughs> well, same here was it in my mind I wanted to be a presenter or an actor this was career choice number one I wanted to be on stage I wanted to be performing and the secondary, the backup choice was to be a journalist or basically to be Lois Lane. And I was very fortunate in that I won a competition when I was at school to win theatre tickets to my local newspaper. We're doing a competition where you could go and see Much Ado About Nothing in London. And I was living in Essex. And I was about 15 or 16. And I entered this competition and I won. So I got given two tickets to go to London to see a play, which was amazing. I couldn't afford to do that. And that was brilliant. So I went to see it after school with one of my friends and then I wrote a review and I sent it in to my local newspaper and they called me and said, please, can you come and see us at half past three? And I said, no, I'm at school. (laughs) (laughs) So I can come in after school. So I went in after school and they said, no one's ever done that before. No one's ever written a theatre review before. Would you like to do more where we will give you theatre tickets, you go and see plays and review them and then we'll publish your words and I thought oh my goodness there's a combination of acting I'm not doing it I'm watching and I'm exposing myself to people who are brilliant and I can learn from them so it was a great combination which led to a couple of years of doing that you know reviewing amazing plays and getting to interview actors and then I was due to take a gap year before university to study English and drama and my local newspaper said we'd like to give you a job and I thought about it and thought well why not I could always go to university after a year and I never went. I never looked back and I started working as a journalist a week before my 19th birthday with my bay trading suit on that was far too big for me. (laughs) (laughs) I became a journalist and I asked to be trained so I got sent away for four months to do my diploma in journalism and my shorthand and it was just not what I planned it was a happy accident that all of that came together, but I absolutely loved it and was a journalist for four years and thoroughly enjoyed it. So how did that transition then into the world of IC? Well, I got a bit stuck. So I was working on one paper and then I moved over to the sister newspaper and I'd got to a point where I couldn't see my next career move. And I was 22, going up 23 actually, by the time I was thinking about what do I do now? I've moved my way up on the news desk and Unless I wanted to be a sub-editor, there were no options there. I'd done a bit of freelancing for the Nationals, done a bit of undercover stuff for a couple of Nationals, which was very exciting, but didn't feel right. It wasn't what I wanted to do. So I went on to monster and read.co.uk and I typed in everything I loved doing, interviewing, writing, editing, and I came up with internal communication. And I thought... I don't know what that is because I've been at school and then the paper didn't have internal comms and I thought oh my goodness there is a whole profession which is doing everything I enjoy doing but not to sell newspapers but to work inside an organisation so I thought I'll give that a go so that was in 2003 and I haven't looked back since I've thoroughly enjoyed working in internal comms since so it was again a happy accident that this world just appeared to me through search engines. It's amazing. And I think for a lot of people, there isn't necessarily a grand plan, is there? You kind of see an opportunity, you take it, see where that leads. Yeah. But I think it's true that if you can identify what really gets you going, what you're really passionate about and follow that, we tend to be very good at what we enjoy and vice versa, don't Mm. we? Yeah. So identifying your passion is really so important in that career journey, I guess. Yeah, totally. I I knew that I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to meet people. I knew I wanted to draw out their stories. I mean, nowadays we talk about storytelling. You'd look for a role that would give you storytelling, but that's not how we talked about it then. And actually, I didn't know what I was looking for until I saw a job advert that I thought, that is on a page. Everything I like doing and lots of things that I don't know how to do. And I was so keen to learn just love working in internal comms. It was so difficult to around from everything that led me to starting and discovering internal comms in 2003. It must have been quite a big move then to eventually go freelance and set your own consultancy up. Mm. What was the moment of decision? What made you decide to do that? Was there a single thing that happened or was it a gradual realisation and that was a natural next step? It was gradual for me. I'd been blogging for four years. So I'd set up my blog in 2009 to share my thoughts on internal comms and to try and do some research on how to use social media for internal comms. And 
for four years, I was building up an audience and building up readers and building up people who were asking me questions and saying, Rachel, can you come and work with us? I like what I'm reading on your blog. Can you come and do that in person for my organisation? And I couldn't because I was working in-house. I worked in-house for 10 years. So it gradually built up and it got to the point where I was planning to have my daughter. I had my daughter in 2012 and I knew I didn't want to go back in-house. When I'd done my last in-house role, I'd entered as a consultant in my mind. So I was employed in-house at Novartis Pharmaceutical Company. And I went in there with the mindset of being a consultant to just try it out. Because I was being employed full-time by them in-house, I thought, let's just see if I would be a good consultant. So I approached my job in a very different way. I recently spoke to my old boss. We were having a coffee and having a chat about that time. And she said, I didn't know you any differently. I just knew that was the way that you were working. My last in-house role was just trying stuff out. And then while I was on maternity leave, I made a decision, I'm going to give it a go. Terrifying. (laughs) It was so scary. My husband said to me, okay, we have a 90-day mortgage holiday. So we have a 90-day break of our mortgage. When you go back to work, we have 90 days for you to make this happen and to bring some money in to pay the mortgage. So I just had to believe in myself and follow up on all those people who'd said, we would love to work with you. I had to then go back and say, were you serious? (laughs) I'm amazed anyone hired me in the first year particularly. I was really bad at promoting myself and saying, I can now help you. I can now work with you. So... The evolution of getting to launching all things I see in January 2013 was an iterative process of discovery and trying things out. And the biggest shift for me was believing in myself and figuring that I could always go back in-house if it didn't work out. I had 90 days. I had to get some money in within 90 days. And I thought, if you can do the first 90 days, you can do the next 90 days. I had a huge calendar on my wall in our office, which is our spare bedroom in our old house. And Looking at that, sitting at my desk on day one with my daughter in nursery, I thought, oh my goodness, how am I going to do that? How am I going to fill that calendar with paid work? But I did. Amazing. And then having a plan sounds like, you know, giving yourself a deadline obviously sounds like a really important thing to do. Otherwise you could drift, you could pontificate, but you knew you had a hard deadline to hit and that Mm -hmm. made a big difference. Was there ever a moment you dreamed it would take off in the way that it has? I checked this morning on Twitter, 18,000 people following you. You are probably, I think, easily one of the most recognised names in our industry in the UK. Was there ever a moment you dreamed it would become this big and you'd become this well known in our field? No. No. (laughs) To be completely honest, I'm very intentional with what I do. I'm very mindful of what I do. And I knew that I didn't want to accelerate my business when it first started because I wanted to add to my family. I wanted to have another child and I deliberately didn't create an agency model and take people on because I knew that my focus and my priority would be my family. So to put my foot on the gas and then step off didn't feel like the right thing to do. But what I have been able to do is give myself space and time to think, to dream, to plan. And the last two years particularly, I've been really intentional with the way that I work. So I've analysed my personal values and I have completely changed my business model to reflect work that enables me to really fulfil what drives me, what motivates me, what I'm genuinely passionate about, which then translates into my work. So any growth that I've had has been personal and professional, but more importantly, it's been about delivering results for clients. It's been about listening to the market, listening to what internal comms pros are struggling with, and helping come up with solutions to their problems. So I'm constantly listening and evaluating. And I'm really humbled by it. I'm really overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by it. And there's still so much more I could do. And there's so many more things I want to do. And I think I don't want to stand still. I don't want to go, oh, there's 18,000 people. You know, for me, it's not about numbers ever. When working with clients and advising them on social media, it's not about having... 100 followers or a 1,000 followers. It's about the quality of the interactions you have and the quality of the people that you work with. And I'm really fortunate that the people I work with are my bucket list clients. And they see something in me that they like, which is such a privilege. It's such a privilege. So it's never about the numbers for me. And it's never about believing the hype. You know, yes. it, when you were saying there, all those lovely things, it was, you can't see my body language. I was like going, oh, it just makes me go... For our listeners, Rachel is cringing (laughs) at the thought of all the things I've just said about her. (laughs) But I think 
I think for me, the results are the results that my clients have and just seeing them grow in confidence, seeing yes. the people that I coach and mentor just grow in confidence and resilience. And then the nurturing that I'm able to do, which is one of my personal values, the nurturing work I get to do, it just set them up for success. And it's not about me it's about them that is an incredible privilege because then they just go back into their organizations and be everything they need to be and the success is wholly theirs and I'm so proud to just almost push them out the nest you know absolutely <laughs> absolutely get them to the point where they need to be and the fact that they choose to be honest with me and expose their flaws and vulnerabilities and we just work together to get them to a place where they can fly and they can you know sort of continue the analogy and just soar and do what they need to do to sort of thrive in internal comms we're striving so much and my intention particularly for 2019 and beyond is how can I help internal communicators to thrive because we're striving Katie we are we are we see it all the time and this is a very special moment I think for internal communications everyone is talking about internal comms I spoke at CIPR very recently and there were lots of marketeers in the room PR people very interested in internal communications but before I leave these 18,000 followers on Twitter (laughs) just before I leave that I was hoping One thing that I was wondering about is as you put fingertips to keyboard to write your next blog or your next tweet, do you ever think about that following? Because obviously there's going to be so many more thousand than 18,000 in terms of impressions before you think about the next thing you want to say. Does it hamper or impinge or make you second guess yourself? Or do you literally just put that out of your mind and think, I know who I am. I know what I need to say and get on and say it. A couple of years ago, I really overthought it and I got really worried about what will people think if I write X or can I be seen to publicly say I don't like Y and I really, really overthought it and as a result, I wasn't being as honest as I wanted to be because, you know, if I read a book and I don't like it, if I write on my blog, it's a good book and people buy it on the back of you recommending it and actually it's not a good book. That's not a good thing. No. So I've been really clear on my disclosure policies around, you know, if I get free tickets to a conference, which I'm completely amazed by and very grateful to have, I will always declare it and say, you know, I've got it for free. But if it wasn't a good conference, I will say that. It's really important that authenticity and integrity and honesty that we try and champion in our organisations. I have to do that. I feel like I need to role model that for myself and for my business and for my children, frankly. So I am mindful of what I write and the impact of what I could write in the way that you do anyway as an internal comms pro. But I think particularly for my blog, it's been first and foremost about my thoughts. It's quite raw. If someone asks me to write a blog post for them, it takes me twice or three times as long. Right. So I overthink it, I overanalyze it, and I get worried about how this come across. Whereas if it's my blog, I can bash it out really quickly because the- my rules, it happens very quickly. I love writing and it happens very, very quickly. So just being true to myself and just, you know, I write blog posts in the back of cabs. I write write wherever I am. I'm always, always writing. But if it's for someone else, that's where I get in my own way. Yes. And I stop myself. Whereas I just need to trust what I'm saying and trust what I'm thinking. And if someone doesn't like it and I invite discussion, every single blog post I write, let me know what you think. Have your say. What do you think? Tweet me. Write a comment. And it always surprises me if people do. Yes. Because yes. I really do. I genuinely want that. I want that discussion. You know, you're the champion of moving from cascade to conversation. That conversation piece is really important for the way I work. So it's not just, oh, Rachel Miller thinks X. Who cares? <laughs> really? Do you know what I mean? It's, I know exactly what you mean. I'd much rather say, this is what I think. What do you reckon? Have I got this right? What, yes. what am I missing? And that working out loud mindset is so important to me because... Have people come up to me in conferences, normally in the toilets, or in the queue for a cup of tea, and saying things like, you wrote something that really helped me, or I've got a question I want to ask you, and I didn't want to ask it online, and I didn't want to email you. I'm like, why not? Just ask me. So normally, in the loose, there's normally, <laughs> normally solving problems for, for our organisations. But I really welcome that. I really yes. I welcome that challenge. Because yes. I, I learn. The more people challenge my thinking, the more I learn. Yes. And the more I'll admit on my blog, I got this totally wrong. And people are fascinated, I think, possibly more fascinated by what we've all learned and the mistakes that we've made and where we've changed our minds than they are about, there's another brilliant case study. We set out to do X. We did X. (laughs) Okay, the end of story. But actually, it's the forks in the road. It's the moments when we kind of tripped up and thought, hang on a minute, I'm going to try that again. As a coach and a counsellor and a trainer, you've seen 
many professionals develop maturing their roles as you say you're now in that position in your career I've certainly I think got to it in mine where you almost enjoy success vicariously through other people as you say Mm. what is that common theme that you see that helps people build their confidence so people come to you with an issue with a problem it's all very well saying be more confident be more open to challenge but it's not easy to do that Mm. are there sort of practical steps that people can take to build their confidence and resilience that's a good question I think for me it's it is about having confidence, but it's also having someone to check your thinking with. Right. So lots of conversations I have, particularly with senior practitioners, with comms directors, if they're in charge of a team particularly, where they don't have a peer, they can't check their thinking before they go out and say, this is what we're doing, or this is what I'm recommending that, that we do as a team for our organisation. And what I'm finding is being that trusted advisor to trusted advisors is such a privilege and I just genuinely love it and welcome it but it's because I would give an honest view and when you're at that level and you feel like I need to be confident in my decision I need to tell my CEO this or I need to restructure my team in x way it's the most human thing you just want to check first you need a safe space to come and go does this make sense (laughs) you know what do you think Rachel is this a way and and those sorts of conversations I can see the value that they add because then the confidence comes because I'm actively challenging someone to say, yeah, I think that makes sense or maybe I'd do it this way. Yes. And then they go back in and they have that renewed confidence because they've checked their thinking. That's what I think has been missing. That's what I think has been missing, certainly for my in-house career. I would have really benefited from that. Having a coach or having someone a peer or a trusted advisor feels like a luxury. When I was in-house, that was not even talked about. No. That would no. be for my CEO or for media trainers for my exec. It wouldn't be for me as a head of comms to think I need a bit of help, I need a bit of advice. Whereas now it's very, very common. And I welcome that. I think that is, I would say that because what I'm doing for, for a living, but I welcome that ability to ask for help and be seen to ask for help. Although most of my work is private. There are no case studies on my blog of website of the people I've worked with and how I've helped them. Because lots of the work I do is confidential. So I think the barrier has been, how do I be confident? How do I be everything I need to be inside my organisation as a comms director or you know head of internal comms when I'm not sure? Mm. And that's the gap that I'm filling. And it's, come and ask me. I'll give you my opinion. And if it's rubbish, I'll take you through to rubbish. You know, I'll have, nicely, but I'll have a constructive conversation that you then can feel more confident in your own skills and abilities because most of the time it's right. Right, yes. Most of the yes. time, what, what they're proposing is what I would do. And if it's not, if we're not sure what the answer is, we just brainstorm together and then come up with a solution that's right for their culture, for their people. There's not an identikit. This is the right answer to every situation. It's nuanced and based on your culture. So I love that. I love working in that way. And you are the kind of independent third party, you're objective, you're outside of the politics. You can also bring experience from other organisations, many things you've seen in other sectors that might be applicable. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine how everyone can get a benefit from just asking for help, basically, Mm -hmm. to someone that they know and that they trust, or at least they can be open and honest with. Would you say perhaps that's the most common mistake you see people making in their careers that is simply not just asking asking for help asking for a fresh perspective I do I think it's because you are so visible as an internal communicator particularly if you're a team of one yes if you don't have a team to ask who on earth are you going to ask that's why Jenny Field Dona Leeson and I set up the IC crowd in 2012 it was to be a space where you can ask you know if you've got CEOs exiting the business you need to do a CEO exit plan and you've never done one before you know you're turned to by your organisation to do that but you can't say oh I've never done that no exactly you'd Probably Google and get to my blog, probably, (laughs) maybe. But the crowd exists to enable people to come together and just help each other figure stuff out, to crowdsource ideas, to give each other advice and guidance in a non-judgmental way. And if it is political, if it is confidential, then you can DM us at the IC crowd on Twitter and we ask it on behalf of a crowd member. Perfect. So I think we identified that gap six years ago now and if anything, it's, there's more pressure on the internal comms pros. There's more visibility in our roles. And particularly as we are trying to be you know, mindful of employee experience, of external comms, we're trying to be all things to all people. If you are a team of one, where on earth do you go to get help? You know, Where do you ask for advice? So 
I'm always looking for ways to fill that gap, always looking for ways to support and nurture and encourage internal comms pros so they can go and be everything they need to be. Yes, absolutely. And I think internal comms people, I speak collectively. Thank you very much for providing that gap. I mean, I've been to several big yak conferences and unconferences, I should say, and there's an energy about those events because mm. I think it's the crowd deciding what they need to discuss which yeah. is wonderful. It's not about me, it's not about Jenny, it's not about Dana, it's about the crowd. It's privileged to do that, we love it. I just want to clone myself when I'm there and just go around <laughs> to every room and, and hear the conversations because to have 150 internal comms people show up on a Saturday to give up a family day, a day that's your own, to come and meet together and talk about internal comms is something quite special and it's just a privilege to be able to do that and to witness the energy and the conversations that happen People who work in internal comms are inherently passionate, genuinely passionate. You wouldn't get out of bed on a Saturday morning, slip across to, you know, a venue in, in London and sit there for a whole day and talk about internal comms if you weren't genuinely inspired and motivated to do good work and to get help and advice from peers. Yes. So, no, oh, we love it. We love doing the yuck. It's, it's no, good. It's they, good fun. They're great events. We are about to head into a, a new year and certainly when this programme goes out, we'll be starting a new year. In terms of what people are talking about and asking questions about, are there any particular themes or trends we need to be all watching out for in the next sort of year, two years, do you think? So I think voice is increasing in volume. People are looking at how do we use voice for internal comms. Daniel Penton is doing a brilliant job in covering that with the work that he's doing. And I think there's much more that we could be doing when it comes to voice. I think, you know, my whole house is controlled by voice. We control lighting and heating and TVs and everything. My children are six and three-year-old twins and they control everything via voice. When they go to the workplace, they would just expect everything to work like that. Mm. My daughter asked me recently, Mummy, why do we have light switches? Right. Because she couldn't remember the last time she used a light switch, which just made me go, wow. Okay, this is a world that is accelerating and we aren't talking enough about that in internal comms at the moment. It's a little way off, but we can start to experiment. We can start to experiment with voice search, for example. Also, repurposing content. Something that's really top of mind for me at the moment is how do you get your channels to work super hard for you? And for me, that's about taking a video, stripping out the audio and using it as a podcast, for example. Yes. We're not so good at that in internal comms we think quite separately about our channels we've got podcasts for this or a video for this or an intranet for that and we don't often signpost between them we don't make them work collectively well together so when I'm analyzing an organization's internal comms I'm looking for that how are you making your channels work for all of the time money and effort you invest in them how are they working super hard for you so key for me at the moment is thinking about repurposing internal content externally, external content internally. It's more, I don't like the phrase holistic, but it's more, you know, more of a rounded, a mm-hmm. rounded approach to content where you're looking at where are the conversations? Absolutely. Internally and externally. And then how do we make sure that we repurpose our content in a smart way that benefits our employees, that benefits our customers, that enhances our reputation? So that for me is something that's on my mind at the moment and I'm plotting, plotting blog posts on. Yes, I totally agree with you. I'm fascinated by where voice is going to take us. I don't think it's going to be that long before some employees wake up in the morning and say, Alexa, play me my team brief. I think... I'm glad you didn't say Siri because I've got a home pod behind us and it <laughs> just kicks in there. <laughs> when I was practising my CIPR speech, I had that line and I practised it in the kitchen. Alexa said, how can I help you every time? <laughs> so, yeah, I know what you mean. I think internal comms is being taken out of the workplace in that respect Mm -hmm. and I think we've got to get with the program I also agree with you that we need to think of content much more as assets and you know when we go out and we find that story we're not finding it in a kind of analog way either it's just pictures or it's just text it's video it's audio it's a picture gallery Mm -hmm. maybe it becomes an animation of some kind maybe it's an infographic that ends up moving I mean there's so many different ways yeah we work hard to get that content. And if we invested all that time in it, then how do we use it best? I think yeah. it's really, really I important. think it's not about repeating the same information across multiple channels because then the quality goes down. It's being, having that 
intention behind each one of what they're there to do, what's the purpose, but just spotting opportunities to see, spotting opportunities to normally reach people who wouldn't have seen a town hall in person. But how can you strip out the audio that they can then have it as an audio file, for example? You know, could that work? Just about thinking differently about your content and not such pigeonholed for each individual channel that you have. So I'm excited to see what happens with that. I'm excited to see what the possibilities could be. And it's doing what we've always done, but doing it smarter. Yes, absolutely. I've heard you speak about this inside-out approach to communication, and you talk about it very eloquently from your own personal perspective, that the future and your career has been based on your values and what's important to you, and that's the starting point. And in many ways, an organisation needs to start there. What's our purpose? What do we believe mm-hmm. in? What makes us special and unique? Yeah. And then from that, then you get your narrative and you get the rest of your content. Does that suggest to you that this line between internal and external is going to continually blur and we're going to be putting a lot more content that originated internally, maybe originated for employees, but we're going to be sharing that more widely? I hope so. So you can see next to us, we've got a big artwork, what happens inside is reflected outside that I had created at the start of this year of 2018 to, to mark five years of running all things I see. And for me, it's that mindset of what happens internally is reflected externally in terms of our culture. For example, you know, you see hashtag life at L'Oreal, hashtag life at Diageo. You see it on Twitter and on LinkedIn. People are looking for purpose-driven organisations. I keep seeing it in job adverts. I have job adverts on my website and the way companies are talking about themselves is changing and we talk about being purpose-driven organisations. This is who we are, what we stand for and what it's like to work here. For me, what good looks like is if your employees are saying that, that's far more palpable, far more powerful because that honest integrity around this is who we are and what we do, not what our career site says and then you contrast it with Glassdoor and it's like two different organisations yeah. where there's congruence with our culture and the way that we communicate it just seeps out. Who doesn't want to be part of an organisation like that? The role there for internal and external comms is to gather those stories and draw together that melting pot of who we are, what we do, why we're here. Yes, it's about being purpose-driven and having the right people in the right roles, you know, doing the right jobs. But more than that, is this is the difference that we're making in the world. When your employees are saying that, it's far more powerful than a billboard, you know, a company saying we want to queue more patients, sell more widgets, transport more people. If you get your employees to say that, but genuinely saying it, not just having technology where you have pre-written tweets that everybody writes, that's not it. I see that so much. And you just think you're nearly there, but you're not. Absolutely. The fact that it's prescriptive and the fact it's, this is what we think you should say about our organisation, that very intentional, very manipulative almost mindset of this is what good looks like, rather than asking employees, what does it mean to you to be here? Absolutely. Then you get that richness, that variety and that honesty around this is what it means for me to work in this organisation. I'd far rather work with those sorts of people. I'd far rather, you know, if I was an employee looking to go somewhere, I'd much rather apply to a company where I can see genuinely. But also, warts and all. It's not all shiny and perfect and brilliant. When you have that language that says, actually, this didn't work so well, so we're doing this instead. Or we made a mistake here. Hold our hands up. We made a mistake. So... This is how our people are fixing it. You know, just that honest conversation. That's just so powerful. Who doesn't want to work for an organisation like that? I certainly would. I think you're right, but I think it requires quite a lot of bravery on behalf of the organisation to reflect the genuine concerns, language, tone of voice Mm. on the front line of our organisations. I just had that conversation at a head office and inside a very large organisation yesterday and a very bright client said, and we must allow the irreverence of the employees to shine through. So you're absolutely right. When they're joking, when it's gone wrong, when they've got a complaint, Mm. because I think employees, because they see under the hood of our organisations every day, they can spot propaganda and manipulation a mile away. You can market to consumers in a way you just can't market to employees. They know exactly what's going on. So I think you're absolutely right, but you need to be brave enough to allow people to speak their minds to a degree don't you ultimately if you don't do it they're doing it anyway they'll be putting on their own personal facebook or twitter or Glassdoor. or i think that's one of the biggest shifts that we've had in organizational communication is you can't control what people say but you can control how you react and how you respond and i think when you're thinking about giving permission to employees to talk about the organization 
it's been a bit of a minefield you know one of the very first things I did the first year of my business was writing so many social media policies and lots of them wanted to do a thou shalt not you know yes that you must say that your views are your own on Twitter and you must say which holds no water you know it was very prescriptive whereas for me I like to think of about social media particularly of you give flexibility within boundaries so right here are the boundaries but be yourself within those boundaries yeah so you're trusting my husband is an IT consultant and I borrow a quote from him constantly so it's John's quote you need to trust people to do the right thing then assume they'll do the wrong thing yes and you think about that from an organisational communication context and from being you know now we talk about having ambassadors and advocates and internal influencers who are trying to influence people externally all of that whole mindset it's about trust yes absolutely trusting your people to say what's and all what's going on but having that bravery and being bold in your organization to listen take it seriously and act on it don't just say well it's all right it's on twitter and they've got 100 followers so it's fine yes (laughs) bring it in you know bring the conversations in and talk about it examine it internally and why you're disappointed with it or what it's brought up it requires more work but all that graft is worth doing because you're having that honest conversation inside your organization to then reflect outside the reality of what it's like to work for you what's and all absolutely we've way moved beyond the era of being able to control the conversation as you say we need to be in it don't we we Mm -hmm. need to be a credible voice in the debate yeah because it's happening whether you're involved or not so you might as well have a voice absolutely (laughs) you've talked about combining work and motherhood and wanting children and Mm -hmm. and here you are with three young children a daughter and twin boys Mm -hmm. Have you achieved, do you think, at this point in your career, the right work-life balance? Or is that something you constantly work at getting right? I hadn't. Until this year, I hadn't. I think I just love my work so much. I could work constantly without taking a break. I just genuinely love it. I also love being a mummy. And I think last year, so 2017, one of my sons was incredibly poorly, had a congenital heart defect that led to an operation this time last year in December 2017, which thankfully was successful and has given him a lease of life thanks to the amazing people at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. And it made me look at our family setup and it made me look at how I work and how I am as a, as a mummy. And it made me realise that the boys will be going, they're turning four this Christmas and they'll be going to school in September 2019. So I decided that this year I would make adjustments. So from September 2018, I'm now working four days a week and we have Mummy Fridays because I didn't have that balance right at all. I felt like I will always be able to work. Having them at home and not at nursery or at school is a very finite window. And I didn't want to be sat here in a year's time with them in reception and Mm. going, oh, I missed it. I didn't get a chance to do it. So to answer your question, I, because of family situation last Christmas was brought sharply into focus and then made me make steps and plans. So I took hold of August off and it was amazing to be with my babies and then to spend really good quality family time together. And then leading into Mummy Fridays has been a really important shift for us. I want them to see that if you choose to work for yourself, that most people who I work with who are consultants who come to my masterclasses for consultants tell me the reason they're doing it or want to do it is for flexibility. And if you are working as a consultant but not choosing to have that self-care that kindness that flexibility then you can miss it yes absolutely and I'm really aware of that so I didn't have it right for five years I didn't have it right and now I'm taking really positive steps and it's benefiting my boys it's benefiting my family and for me as well having that mummy time to just be with them and be present is really really important and it's fun, actually. We do amazing Lego together. <laughs> we do baking. All the things we don't get a chance to do at weekends because we're ferrying around after their social lives and parties, frankly. Those Fridays are really important. And I I will not work on Fridays. It's really important to me. So my PA knows that as soon as we made a decision earlier in the year, I made a decision in March and then they disappeared from my diary. <laughs> I think that's important yeah. because I think we can say that we're going to balance things and juggle things better, but actually you need some hard lines and you need to block out time. Otherwise it just encroaches and then you've lost another day when you hoped yes. to draw breath and spend time with those you love and it just doesn't happen. No. I think we should also say that even if you're not working for yourself, even if you are a traditional PAYE person, mm-hmm. full-time equivalent, as they call them, that 
the right organisations, the best organisations are allowing you to have that conversation about how you can manage a work-life balance better. Yeah, that's true. And certainly I know where we are at AB, people work from home occasionally, have flexible working, we give them the tools they need. And I think all employers really in today's world need to be thinking about how they support people at different times of their career to get the right work-life balance. I think that's true. I think, you know, whether you're caring for elderly relatives or you play sport on a Tuesday night and you want to leave a bit earlier, whatever flexibility means for you, it's not about, you know, having parenting responsibilities. I think flexibility comes in all shapes and sizes. And I think being able to have those conversations is really important because again, it's what happens inside is reflected on the outside. If you're stressed and you're constantly working and you have no time for self-care, you have no time for you, you will burn out. Absolutely. You're in a very, very visible role. And if you don't take the time to not be okay. So next year, for example, for 2019, I've changed my working again. So I'm working Monday to Wednesdays. And then on Thursdays, I'm doing, I've got lots of plans for next year. Um, I can tell. Yeah. I'm doing content creation on a Thursday for lots of things I'm working on. And then every Thursday afternoon, I'm seeing a counsellor. And it's, you know, to deal with family situation, particularly from last year. But I built that into the way they work. So I now have my setup from January to September next year of 2019 is very clear. These are days that I'm working. Thursdays is all about my business and content. And then Thursday afternoons is about my brain. It's about my mind, you know, my mental health and well-being. Because if I don't get that built in, if I don't invest that time and effort in looking after myself, then what happens being inside, being reflected outside, is going to be a bit broken. All of the nurturing and care that I'm giving other people need to do it for myself. I was just about to say, Rachel Miller is taking her own advice. <laughs> I am, I am. <laughs> it's great to see. It's really important. And I think just, you know, breaking that stigma that it's all right. It's all right to say, I'm having counselling. It's all right to say, people to have issues of mental health. It's okay. It's okay to say that. I mean, I'd be so bold as to say, I think that's why people are so interested in what you have to say. It's because it's not manufactured from a million other people's ideas. It's you being yourself. It's you deliberating on what you've seen going on either internally within your own family or yourself or what you see going on with your clients and then sharing your thoughts in a very authentic way. And I think you're right. But I think it does require a degree of bravery and I know I'm particularly bad at it I think I should be sharing this story it's a genuine story it reveals something of myself just when we had mental health day the other week Mm -hmm. I said in a team meeting someone should share a true story about coping with mental illness Mm -hmm. and I felt terrible for saying it because I knew I had a story and I wasn't brave enough to share it so I think it's something we have to practice basically and take baby steps on and maybe you're just going to inspire me to try harder in the new year Bless you. but it's all right you know it's all right to ultimately if people judge you for sharing your vulnerability are they the sort of people you want to be around no you know I was having a comms consultant the other day and she was not sure how much to reveal about herself on her website and for me in my head is your vibe attracts your tribe right so if your vibe is you being honest and you being truthful about who you are how you work if people don't like that they're not the right sorts of clients for you they're not the sort of people that will choose to work with you and actually the more honest you are and the more truthful you are to yourself the more you attract the right sorts of people who like what they see and choose to work with you that's a much better way of being. Life's too short to be someone else. It's okay to be you, warts and all. And, you know, I didn't admit that on my blog for a while. I sort of hinted at World Mental Health Day for a couple of years, sort of hinting that I've been surrounded by people who have mental health problems rather than saying that I've yes. experienced it myself. And then last year, I took my own advice and thought, actually, who's it harming by me being honest? Yes, And absolutely. the amount of people who got in touch and said, oh my goodness, I'm really glad you wrote that because... I also have that. And I was able to point them towards resources like the Blurt Foundation, who are amazing. And genuinely, it is okay to not be okay. Yes, absolutely. It genuinely, it's such a phrase used so much now. But what we do is, particularly for in-house as an internal comms pro, and you are stressed and you are always on and always visible, mm. you need to step out of that. You need to give yourself space and time to check in with yourself. Absolutely. Really important. Absolutely. I have five quick fire questions. <laughs> <Marvelous>, okay. <laughs> what is the most common misconception about Rachel Miller? So I think that I'm super confident. Right. That I don't suffer from imposter syndrome. 
and that I've got it nailed. And I don't. I'm figuring it out like everybody else. I've written 1,250 articles on my blog in the last 10 years of trying to figure stuff out. I don't have it all nailed. The day that I declare I know what the perfect trends are for internal comms would be the day that I cease to be successful. I'm open to learning and I don't know everything. And when people approach me at a conference, they say, you must know the answer to this. <laughs> and when I say, do you know, I don't, but I'm happy to find out and I can connect you with people. They go, oh, <laughs> I don't know everything. Of course I don't know everything. I'm open to learning and figuring stuff out. So I would say that possibly, that, yes. that I've got everything nailed and sorted. No, and I haven't. <laughs> no, I had a special birthday this year. So I'll admit to being 50 and I still have, definitely don't have the answers to everything. But I think you're right. I think it's the openness or at least being able to work out how you find the answer. Mm-hmm. I think that's possibly where we've got to in our careers. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's a good question. I have no idea what the answer is, but give me a day, give me a week, give me whatever, and I'll reach some conclusions. Yeah. You know, I have a process for getting there. Yeah. And I think that comes back again to resilience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like, I know how to sort that one out eventually. Give me some time. Definitely. And I think it's having the confidence to say that at a conference. If people ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. I spoke at the Public Service Comms Academy in, in Birmingham in October 2018 and 350-seat place. It was massive, quite terrifying. Someone asked me a question and I didn't know the answer. And I just said, I don't know the answer to that, but come and talk to me afterwards, give me your details and I'll figure it out and come back to you. It's all right not to know. Yes, absolutely. I don't think he would have judged me as, oh, I shouldn't know the answer. No, I don't know the answer. I th- I'll figure it out, you know? And I think people would rather hear an honest, wow, that's a great question, I have no idea, than someone pretending. Yeah, but then they tweet it. If you make up an answer and you fudge an answer and then it goes out on Twitter and then you read it and go, oh, I really didn't know the answer. I really shouldn't have said that. You know, it does yourself a disservice. So it is okay to say, I don't know the answer. Don't fudge it because those words will live longer than that moment of you being uncomfortable. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is courtesy of Tim Ferriss, who I'm a big fan of. You can put a message on a billboard for millions to see. What's that message? You've got this. You've got this. Fantastic. Just trust and believe in yourself. You've got this. Whatever it is, whatever you're struggling with, believe in yourself. You've got this. I love it. I love it. Fantastic. Is there one book, website, journal, magazine that every communicator should read or should have read? So I think the Engage With Success website is an absolute treasure trove. There is so much content in there. So I think if you're interested in employee engagement and you haven't checked out Engage With Success, then you are missing a huge trick. There are case studies. There's a weekly radio show, like a talk show on there. It is such an amazing resource, not just the McLeod report from David Anita, not just that report, which is good to have, but that genuine the reality, the evidence. What is this thing called engagement? How does it work? It still amazes me now, but people haven't heard of engagement success right. 10 years on. I think that website particularly, and everything that goes with it, you know, the Twitter feed and, and the events that they do, is well worth checking out. If you've never looked into it, it's well worth checking out. So it's just engageforsuccess.org. Brilliant. And we'll, bookmarks. <laughs> it's brilliant. And we will put the links on the show notes as well. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you wouldn't fail? Failure was not an option. What would you do? I would get the ideas that have been in my head and in about four notebooks out. (laughs) And I've got so many ideas, so many ideas, things I want to do. And 2019 for me is about growth and it's about experimenting and getting some of those ideas out. So the main one is online masterclasses. Wow. Wow. So I've been asked about them. I launched my masterclasses in September 2016 and I've trained 450 internal communicators through bespoke sessions and monthly masterclasses. And for all the people who are able to come, I have probably the same number who get in touch to say, I can't travel to London. You know, global, I can't travel. I don't have budget to come. I can't spend a day doing an online course. And the answer has been no. And that's what my Thursdays are about next year is getting, I've hired a marketing virtual assistant to help me. And we're going to get all of that out of my head and out of my notebooks and into reality. Fantastic. So exclusive for you there. <laughs> Fantastic. Look out for that in 2019. Yeah. And that means that you can attend a masterclass wherever you are in the world. No when matter. you need it. When you need it. And that's the gap because currently they're on a cycle. So it's changed comms masterclasses every three months. 
And if you're in a change comp situation, you can't wait three months. No. And there's a gap for done for you, done with you training that you can access when you need it, workbooks, videos, all of that. That's what's been in my head. So if I knew I couldn't fail, I would just do it and stop. They've been in my head for so long and I'm giving myself that space and time now to do it. Yes, absolutely. And trusting that they won't fail. And if they do, I'll just readjust. I'm doing lots of research at the moment now to make sure that I'm not just doing what I think is important. I'm listening to clients. I'm listening to blog readers to make sure I'm solving the problems that they have, not the problems I think they have. That's really important for me. Absolutely. Like any good communicator, the answer (laughs) lies with the audience so often. When you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who immediately springs to mind? Obama. Really? I love Barack Obama. I just, I'm a big fan of Jeremy Waite's podcast, the 10 Words podcast. If you've never heard it, it's just incredible. And he did such a good one on Barack Obama. I got my children going, fired up, ready to go. <laughs> they never listened to it. It's just, he is a natural, inspirational, authentic storyteller, communicator, leader. Whether you like his politics or not, you can't argue that he is a fantastic communicator. So yeah, he's number one in my mind. I'm reading Michelle, yes. Michelle's book at the moment, which is, I've got behind us actually, I've got a book on neuroscience, organisational change, and a book on becoming by Michelle Obama. That's both sides of my life right there in that pile on the desk behind us. Um, so yeah, Obama for me. Fantastic. Well, Rachel Miller, thank you so much for taking part in the IC podcast. Yeah. It's been a genuine pleasure and privilege to speak to you. And I hope people will be able to come back again and have this conversation when those online masterclasses get going so we can talk about how they're going. Marvellous. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So that's a wrap for episode one, season one of the Internal Communications Podcast. In the show notes, you'll find links to the various sites and reference materials Rachel and I discussed. Take a look on the IC Podcast page on AB's website, abcom.co.uk. I'm very keen to hear your thoughts on this show, but in particular, your ideas for future guests. Now, there's lots of ways to get in touch. Please rate the podcast or comment on iTunes. You can also share your views on Twitter. We're at ABThinks or simply email me, icpodcast at abcom.co.uk. To make sure you don't miss another episode of the IC Podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. All that remains then is for me to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of the IC Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.